Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Our only source of water in the Imperial Valley is the Colorado River. If water does not flow past Lake Mead, this area would dry up and be, be a desert once again. It'd be a ghost down here. A water war is brewing in the West as the Colorado River runs dangerously low. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, yesterday's unthinkable scenarios are today's reality for water use in the West. We'll hear from farmers in California and Arizona whose futures are at risk. And some new recipes from Kathy Gunst. But first, we're seeing this week how Republicans flipping the House has changed the course of the investigation into the Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has turned over thousands of hours of surveillance footage from that day to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. McCarthy defended the move, telling the New York Times he'd promised to release thousands of hours of security footage beyond what's already been made public in the investigations, and, quote, let everybody make their own judgment. Democrats have another view. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the release one of the worst security risks since 9-11 because the footage could reveal how the rioters breached the Capitol and the routes members of Congress used to flee. Representative Dan Goldman called the move shocking and suggested it's part of a strategy by Republicans to deflect blame for the attack. The possibilities for someone like Tucker Carlson, uh, who has no relationship with the truth, is to cherry pick various portions of it, try to weave it together to create a false narrative that can then go through the right wing ecosphere. Robin Young spoke earlier today with California Congressman Adam Schiff, a Democrat who was on the January 6th committee. Uh, Congressman Schiff, yesterday Speaker McCarthy sent out a fundraising email blast to supporters saying, I promised you I would give you the truth regarding January 6th, and today I'm delivering. Republicans are saying this is sunshine. You say what? I say this is a danger to the security of the Capitol. And what's more, we don't really know whether Kevin McCarthy is telling the truth here. Uh, Our understanding from the Capitol Police is that the tapes have not been turned over. Although they have been given access, uh, that is, a producer from Tucker Carlson has been able to review at least a portion of the tapes. Uh, But if they do this, or in fact have already done it, uh, it's a terrible security breach. Uh, Those videos will reveal where Capitol Police are stationed. They will reveal escape routes for legislators. They will reveal where the security cams are. Uh, It will essentially provide a roadmap for someone else uh, planning another attack on the Capitol. And it just shows that McCarthy, in order to placate the most extreme members of his conference, will do anything to keep his speakership, uh, including compromise the security of the police, uh, the members, and the whole complex. Well, you just said something interesting. So you're saying this notion that McCarthy gave these tapes, that that, uh, Tucker Carlson, as he said, his producers have these tapes, they don't have it, which brings us to this question, because Benny Thompson, who was, was, of course, the ranking member of the Jan 6 Committee, told Morning Edition today that when you viewed these tapes, it was in secure portals. You couldn't do anything that the Capitol Police didn't let you do. There has been a fear 
that since uh, Tucker Carlson and others don't believe that this was an insurrection, they might edit the tapes together and air them in this edited way that might change the narrative. Are you saying they can't do that? Well, it's unclear whether the tapes have been handed over or whether they're going to be handed over. Uh, if they are, then yes, uh, Tucker Carlson, as he has done before, uh, can misrepresent to the country what took place on January 6th. Remember, this is a guy who produced uh, a false uh, documentary that, uh, among other things, suggested that January 6th was a false flag operation uh, designed to embarrass Donald Trump instead of by his most extreme MAGA supporters. Uh, so this is a, a very unreliable, to put it politely, uh, and in fact, I think a, a very dangerous uh, outlet on Fox that he is providing access to these videos. Uh, when we review them in, in the January 6th committee, uh, when we produce them uh, in portions to the public, we did that vetting those uh, videos with the Capitol Police to make sure that we weren't going to compromise security by the releases that we made. Mm, well, My understanding is similarly the Justice Department, when it uh, tried some of these uh, seditious conspiracy uh, actors, uh, also made very careful uh, decisions about what it could release uh, and what would compromise security. But none of that is being done uh, as far as uh, Kevin McCarthy is concerned. Well, Carlson's uh, already saying some of the video contradicts the findings of your committee. Uh, so to be direct, was there anything in those tapes that you or the committee held back because it might counter that this was a violent attack on the Capitol or you worried it would be taken out of context? Uh, I'm not uh, aware of anything that could be described that way. Uh, now, I, I haven't reviewed uh, you know tens of thousands of hours of footage myself, but what we presented was very consistent with the whole body of evidence that we received. Uh, our goal was to share the facts, share the truth with the American people. I think that's exactly what we did. Uh, but remember, the outlet that, uh, that McCarthy has chosen to give access to these tapes uh, is one that has been uh, pushing the big lie, uh, that uh, in its own, as I understand it, in its own defense, uh, when being sued by Dominion voting systems uh, for defaming uh, that voting system, in its own defense says it's not a real news agency uh, and that people shouldn't believe what they say. And this is who Kevin McCarthy uh, wants to trust with this security footage. It's just shocking. Uh, this this uh, outlet for Kremlin propaganda, Tucker Carlson, this is who they're choosing to give these tapes to. So... You know, again, uh, it just shows that the weakness of the speakership, uh, the desperate need to cling to that office and, and rely on the Matt Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens, is already compromising the Congress in, in well, what would have been unthinkable ways. Well, Tucker Carlson has the most popular show on cable news, and so he might be coming out with a new narrative soon. And I was going to ask, as some are, do you think Democrats should release the videos, but you're saying it's a matter of safety? Adam Schiff, a Democratic representative from California and member of the Jan 6 Committee, thank you. Thank you. Coming up... When we lose our water supply, we move. We don't have a choice. In a water war, things are going to get ugly. If there's no water, then you have a right to nothing. Our series on water in the West continues after the break.
This week, we're digging into the crisis on the Colorado River, which is running dangerously low because of climate change and overuse. Head back in the feed to yesterday's episode if you missed Peter O'Dowd's reporting on the toxic dust wafting off Southern California's Salton Sea. Today, Peter takes us to farms on either side of the Arizona-California border, a dividing line that could be a flashpoint in the West's water war, if it isn't already. About 75% of Colorado River water goes to agriculture, and farmers in both states are bracing for the worst as things continue to dry up. You can't ignore the power of water in the desert when it's rushing past you. This canal is swollen with Colorado River water that's been diverted to farms in Yuma, Arizona. It's everything to what we do. We couldn't grow any of the crops without it. Amanda Brooks is a fourth-generation farmer who uses river water on 6,000 acres to grow broccoli, dates, and cotton. Iceberg lettuce, romaine lettuce, uh, we grow some celery and some onions. You name it, she probably grows it. This area near the U.S.-Mexico border produces 90% of the winter lettuce crop for the entire country. I, I think I speak for all farmers in Yuma when I say we're proud of what we do and we love it. And yet we're standing uh, in front of this canal full of Colorado River water. There's a real crisis on the river. Are you concerned about the future? Yes. Right now, not everybody's getting along. Not everybody is agreeing on what that solution is. It's, it's scary. She's talking about the seven states that make up the Colorado River Basin. Last month, six of them sent the government a proposal for sweeping system-wide cuts. But the state that uses the largest share of the river didn't sign it. California came up with its own plan. Without a solution, the reservoirs will keep dropping. And hydrologists say the river could stop flowing past the dam at Lake Mead to Yuma and California within two years. That scenario is called Deadpool. It is really hard to fathom that, but... It is something that's on the back of my mind, and I pray every night that we don't get there. Considering the stakes, Brooks says Yuma farmers are saving everywhere they can. She shows me a broccoli field that's been leveled with lasers to reduce runoff. She also works with a coalition of local irrigation districts that offered to let some fields go dry. They asked the government for $1,500 for every acre foot of water they didn't use. In general, I think it was received as we were being greedy. But if you know Yuma and you know the crops we grow, $1,500 an acre foot does not make a farmer whole. Their plan didn't go anywhere. And now farmers like Amanda Brooks have no idea what's next. Economists don't either. George Frisvold at the University of Arizona says a while back he ran a model trying to understand what would happen in the event of an unthinkable shortage on the river. And we look specifically at what would happen in the southwest if you took out 2.5 million acre feet. And it really doesn't affect the crops grown in Yuma at all. The veggies stay there. You know, the veggie production is going to be the last thing that's affected because that's the most profitable thing. So people growing other things are going to get hit. If you're growing hay, you're growing sedan grass, you're growing wheat, you're growing cotton. Those are the things that are going to go away first. Did you go up beyond two and a half million? No, we didn't because this we did this about 10 years ago. And we thought, oh, you know, you're playing these economic models almost like a video game. It's like, oh, let's crank this up, right? We thought that was like an extreme shock. 
What seemed like an extreme shock a decade ago is now essentially inevitable. The Bureau of Reclamation says states must save two to four million acre feet of water to keep the reservoirs stable. Imagine up to three million football fields covered with a foot of water. We're in somewhat uncharted territory. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Getting our RPMs up, re-engaging our GPS. Yuma farmer Kirk Dunn is aware of the threat. He grows those lower value crops that Frisvold was warning about. And this is what I do most days if I have my choice. I'm driving in circles getting stuff done in the field. <laughs> On a sunny February day, we're squeezed inside the cab of his tractor. Dunn is planting a new type of wheat that requires less water. It's an experiment. He hopes to cut his irrigation by 20% without affecting the harvest. We're doing as best we can to prove that before we need to do it. In the meantime, Dunn is frustrated with his neighbors. Just a few miles from here, farmers in California have senior water rights, which means that in times of extreme drought, Arizona suffers first. Cities like Phoenix and Tucson and many of the state's farms lose all their river water before California loses any. Arizona agreed to the deal in the 1960s. Folks around here call it the law of the river. You know, as much as California and other states like to rely on the law of the river and these historic compacts and their, their water rights, all of those are going to go out the window here pretty soon because you can have the best rights to water ever, but if there's no water, then you have a right to nothing. This tension between states has set the stage for a food fight. Just across the state line, the town of Holtville, California, calls itself the carrot capital of the world. Every February, the town throws a parade in honor of its treasured vegetable. Resident Mike Webb was getting ready to join the line of floats in a 1970 El Camino with a pile of carrots stacked on the hood. They smell good and they taste good, too. Fresh out of the ground? Yeah, there's a little dirt still here on this one. <laughs> Webb grew up here in the 1960s. He says despite the state's enviable water rights, the fear of running out is real. You know, you think you're secure, but uh, there's only so much to go around. How do you think it's going to work out? I really don't know, um, but um, it, it, it is a little tough right now being a farmer, i got to tell you. Uh, you know, just a lot of tension, like you said. It's from the unknown, I think. When we lose our water supply, we move. We don't have a choice. Tina Shields is a manager at the Imperial Irrigation District, which delivers water to about half a million acres in California's Imperial Valley. IID is the largest single water user on the river. It's entitled to 10 times more water than the entire state of Nevada. Shields says the plan from the six other states to save water ignores the priority system laid out in the law of the river. That's because other basin states want to account for downstream evaporation, which would end up leaving California with most of the cuts. We don't just stop honoring existing agreements, compacts, laws, and legislation because times are a little tough and 
folks didn't realize they'd be impacted. Nobody said it was going to be easy, but that's the deal. Does part of you see that it kind of looks bad, I guess, whether it's the right thing or not? Well, let's look at it from our perspective. Are we supposed to sacrifice our community that's been here for 100 years so the city of Phoenix can continue to grow and build more subdivisions and have more golf courses? I don't think it's fair to take a disadvantaged community with longstanding water rights and expect that we don't have the same value that those folks have. And I understand they have challenges, and, and it's no one said it's going to be easy, but we want to make sure that we're not sacrificing rural agricultural communities for these large urban areas because they overbuilt. Shields says at this point, reaching consensus will be difficult. And that is one thing that Wade Noble agrees with. Good, easy, or promising is just not there. The situation is very tight. Noble is a lawyer who represents irrigation districts in Yuma, Arizona. He says negotiations are breaking down because California won't back down. They have the most water. They are willing to drive the bargain hard and make other people give in to them, which may not happen. Can you blame them? I mean, if you were sitting just a couple miles to the west in California, (laughs) I mean, isn't that what you would do if you had something as valuable and precious as water? In a water war, things are going to get ugly. And they have been ugly for a while, but they're going to get worse. That's about what I can say. What does that mean? What does that look like? You end up in court. Uh, You end up having the courts determine who gets what rights. Is there time for that at this point? That could take years. Yes. The, the Lake Mead is almost empty. <laughs> that could take years. Lake Mead could crash, as we call it. At this point, many people expect the federal government will have to intervene and order the states to make cuts before the reservoirs reach Deadpool. With a sprinkler system hissing and spraying over a 35-acre plot of romaine, Holtville farmer Jack Vesey says he and others are willing to help The Imperial Irrigation District has volunteered to save 250,000 acre-feet this year as long as the farmers get paid for it. Our eyes are open. We can't just, you know, put our head in the sand and keep doing the same thing year in and year out, and we don't. And and we strive to, as my dad says, to shuck and jive and, 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 and survive. But Vesey also wants California to do whatever it can to protect its right to the river. There's too much on the line. You know, I I think of the Grapes of Wrath and the Dust Bowl. Right. You know, I see 180,000 people from this valley loading up and moving somewhere. We can't. Our only source of water in the Imperial Valley is the Colorado Colorado River. If water does not flow past Lake Mead, this area would dry up and be be a desert once again. Oh, it'd destroy everything. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a ghost down here. A hypothetical scenario, sure, but one that is creeping closer to reality by the day. For Here and Now, I'm Peter O'Dowd. There's still some Western-grown lettuce and vegetables to go around. And after the break, resident chef Kathy Gunst is back to share some creative recipes for bowls with Scott Tong. Stick around. So do you like your meals in bowls? My family does a bulgogi edamame kind of make it up thing. But for the real thing, well, we need Kathy Gunst here in our resident chef to 
<clears throat> Bowl us over. Kathy, hello, and sorry about that. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think you nailed it, Scott. Winging it with bowls is exactly the point. They are so adaptable and interactive, and there's no way you can go wrong. You're layering flavors and textures. And Kathy, how did bowls take over society? I mean, there's Chipotle, by us, there's Cava, there's the Poke Bowls. They're every direction now. It's really funny because there's absolutely no difference, let's say, in eating a meal that's in a bowl with a grain on the bottom, some kind of protein, some kind of sauce, some kind of condiment, than eating it on a plate. I literally think it's more fun and it mm. feels somehow there's become this association that bowls are healthy. So if you eat it all in a bowl, you're eating healthy food. <laughs> but if you eat it on a plate, not so much. I don't know. Put your french fries in the bowl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you have uh, some suggestions for us, uh, starting with breakfast, breakfast bowl. Yeah. What, what do you have to suggest for us? This is actually one of my favorites and a really wonderful way to start the day. So you make polenta or grits, which is simply mm. a matter of boiling water and putting cornmeal in. And five or 10 minutes later, you have this delicious okay. corn mush. You top it with sauteed kale or spinach or Swiss chard, green of choice. And then you either poach or fry an egg and top it oh. with that. And then you can add avocado or Greek yogurt or hot sauce. This is what I'm saying. All of these bowls, just uh, anything you want to play with is going to work here. Yeah. All right. Lunch. Uh, Lunch. You're suggesting chicken on a bed of slaw. Tell us more. Yeah. So it doesn't always have to be a carb at the bottom of a bowl. This is kind mm. of a Latin flavored lunch bowl. You make a very quick lime slaw by thinly slicing red cabbage, grating some carrots, adding lime zest and lime juice, and that's at the bottom. And then I marinated some radishes in the quickest pickle on earth. You just slice the radishes, put them in a bowl, heat up some cider vinegar, water, sugar, salt, and let mm -hmm. them sit for half an hour or so. Then there's chicken with um, fresh lime juice, cinnamon, cumin, hot sauce, and then it all gets layered. Slaw, chicken, radishes, a little bit of warm corn tortillas or flour tortillas, and crumbled feta, goat cheese, or Mexican cochilla. Mm. So while we're on this, uh, I mean, the bed of slaw is just this fascinating idea because a lot of us think about it as a grain, rice on the bottom. Not everybody wants to have a lot of these carbs. So what are some alternative beds? The slaw is really nice. Sautéed greens, any kind of shredded raw vegetables, radishes, carrots, zucchinis, mm. squash. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to have a carb. And it can also be a healthy carb. So for dinner, I have brown rice, salmon oh. with roasted fennel and radicchio, and then a very simple soy ginger sauce on the side. So brown rice has got the wonderful texture, takes a little bit mm -hmm. longer than white rice, but again, yeah. could be white rice, could be couscous. The sauce is fresh ginger, scallion, soy, and rice vinegar. And then the salmon gets roasted. It's all on one baking sheet, not a lot of fuss here, with a fennel mm. bulb cut around it, a small head of radicchio, which is a, a bitter lettuce, olive oil, ginger, and scallion. And then you just layer everything, brown rice, salmon. You have the sauce on the side, a lemon, mm. an avocado, sesame seeds. 
being playful with these bowls is the answer. It's like, yeah, here's a recipe, but just adapt it. Have fun with it. Yeah. You think we're in a bowl, I don't know, era? That is, we're going to see more and more suggestions, innovations, changes, possibilities going forward? A bowl state of mind? Um, yeah, I do. It seems to be <laughs> permeating <said>. through, <laughs> I did, through many cultures. You know, you'll see Japanese bowls, you'll see Korean bowls, you'll see health food bowls, you'll see French style bowls. It's a fun way to eat. And as I said, what I like most about it is how much interaction there is and you know plop a poached egg on top of a piece of fish or chicken and you've got a whole different kind of bowl so endless possibilities we've been talking bowls for every meal breakfast lunch and dinner with kathy gunster here and our resident chef and we all have all of kathy's recipes and i hope photos at hereandnow.org kathy thank you as always thanks scott good to talk While you're at hereandnow.org for those recipes, check out Robin's reporting from Southwest Florida as the region continues to recover from Hurricane Ian five months later. 5,837 homes have been either demolished or are no longer places for people to live. That leaves them another 100,000 homes that they have to go check on and see if these are still part of the tax rolls, if people can still live in them. You can find that whole conversation at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Peter O'Dowd, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.